Making our schools safer has been the focus of education lately, but how can security change a school and what are the trade-offs with increased security policies? Today we discuss this topic with Calvin Morrill, a professor of sociology and law at UC Berkeley, who conducted an in-depth study on safe schools and co-authored the recent book, Navigating Conflict, How Youth Handle Trouble in a High-Poverty School. This is the Harvard EdCast. There are a lot of different types of safe school movements that have happened in the country, right? Right. Right. And, and this was the, the safe schools movement that, that we, we talk about in the school, which we're very clear about, is the more criminal justice-inflected safe schools movement. Uh, this began in the 1980s as an outgrowth of the victim witness movement. Uh, it was a coalition of uh, largely of parents, teachers, uh, and administrators, and criminal justice personnel. Um, it was specifically aimed at stemming uh, crime and violence on school campuses. Now, there's a more recent uh, safe schools movement, which starts in the 1990s. It's a coalition of teachers and students primarily. This is a safe, that's a safe school movement, which attempts to carve out safe spaces for uh, youth of all sexual orientations on campuses. That's a different safe schools movement. They've adopted the same name, but but the older safe schools movement, the more criminal justice-inflected one, is the one that that uh, has had an enormous impact on all campuses around the United States. Uh, it receives federal funding. There is a uh, uh, there was a center established, uh, National Safe Schools Center, and there were sev- several legislative acts associated with the criminal justice-inflected safe schools movement. The school that you were in. It was, as you mentioned, peaceful, and then the school started to enact policies and and beef up security. Is that what yeah. happened? Well, it's it's kind of an interesting. We think it's an interesting story. It's one of our the two stories. One story we tell in our in our book, Navigating Conflict, is the story about how youth on a daily basis kept the peace on campus. Um, not perfectly, and we're not romantic about it. I mean, there, 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 there was some incidents of violence and intimidation, but but those were much less apparent uh, than than were other dynamics of of more peaceful orientations and behaviors. But about three years into our field work, we uh, uh, learned of a of a very uh, violent collective incident on campus that involved multiple youth. Uh, sort of a, initially was described to us by teachers and by by students as a as a gang fight. Um, it was one of the few days that we actually didn't have a researcher on the campus for several years. We had at least one or two researchers on the campus every day, but it was just happened to be one of the days where we weren't there. And um, we investigated this because it it really. Uh, surprised us, and, and and in our book, actually, we we describe this as an event that really shook what we thought we knew about this this uh, uh, what we were characterizing as a safe uh, high poverty school. And what we what we began to learn, first of all, is that there were multiple narratives about what happened in this incidence of violence. It was eight youth um, that initially were described uh, rival gangs and so on. Uh, police recalled there was a lockdown. The school was uh, closed for half a day. Folks went to the hospital. Some arrests were made. Uh, it was a big mess. 
big mess and very different from the three years previous to that that we had been on campus. But as we began to learn and investigate more about this incident, what we began to see is that it connected to some, it seemed to connect to some serious policy changes that were underway on the campus. And in fact, security guards uh, initially alerted us to this connection because they talked about how some of the very uh, mechanisms and and, and uh, uh, conditions that we had observed that seemed to be associated with the peaceful nature of the campus were being stripped away as the campus uh, increasingly through new security policies uh, began to restrict movement on campus, close the campus, uh, installed a, a series of security measures, and so on. Now, now our argument is not that these security measures uh, in and of themselves may not be useful under some conditions, but that when you have a, a relatively safe school to introduce some of these security mechanisms, especially the restriction of movement and the confining of students to certain areas uh, uh, during free periods is going to lead to uh, some of the unfortunate uh, incidents that, that, that we saw, especially this, this collective incident. And, and so what were those mechanisms? So instead of allowing students during free periods to move about campus, uh, under the, the sort of watchful and supportive eye of, of teachers, they confined students to a very small area uh, near a cafeteria and near a small uh, open space. And students could only eat their lunches there. They were sort of surrounded by teachers, monitored by teachers, and so on. And what began to pervade the campus was a, a sense of anxiety uh, about what was going on on the campus. Students actually became more anxious. They alerted us, and we began to see it in some of our observations, some of the other materials that we were collecting. And as we looked back on this incident and we began to connect the lines of inquiry between the incident and some of these other uh, data that we had, we began to suspect that the policy changes had actually played a role in not only uh, creating and facilitating the conditions that might have led to this, uh, this uh, violent incident, but also, uh, as we look back, as we went forward from the year 2000 to 2005, we began to see a rise in incidences of uh, police calls from the uh, school, and we began to see a variety of other things happening with the school that indicated that some of what we had seen in the late 90s was now being interrupted by the policy changes of the early 2000s. So it almost seems like these policies kind of chipped away at a, a very positive and peaceful culture that the school had. I think that's what we began to see. I mean, there was certainly an erosion of trust between teachers and students, between especially between students and the administration. Uh, the students reported to us that as the policy changes came in, they could feel the changes in the physical environment of the school. An example being that many of the trees that had uh, uh, been growing on the campus for years, this is an old campus, this is a campus by the time we got there that was almost 100 years old, many of the trees that uh, had grown on the campus, especially in some larger sort of athletic fields where students used to sit around and have lunch and so on, they were cut down. And they were cut down because they were deemed security risks. The, the on-campus lockers that students had used were 
taken out and replaced, and now students could, had to carry around their um, all of their books and whatever in, in backpacks. They could only have backpacks. Um, uh, the uh, there were uh, there were gates that were installed that could be closed in order to sort of cauterize different parts of the campus to close off different parts of the campus and to control movement by students across uh, the campus. Uh, there were as a security ch- uh, cameras were installed, uh, entry and exit to the campus, and so on. Teachers reported to us a couple of things. One, they reported that they did feel uh, that they were becoming more like security guards, and their role was less as an educator and more as a security guard, and they didn't like that. That's As one uh, teacher put it to us, that's not what I signed up for. And secondly, teachers also reported that they, uh, they felt that there was a lot of uh, other additional activities that were expected of them that they just couldn't fulfill. For example, uh, sort of supervising this very cramped area where students were confined to during uh, during free periods, or supervising an increasingly full area where students who were sent for in-school suspension uh, were being held. This was called by everyone, the teachers and the students, the tank. It was sort of like a, an impromptu, almost like an impromptu jail on campus, and and just increasingly lots of students sent there uh, in the early 2000s uh, for, uh, uh, for in-school suspension. And, and teachers said, you know, this, how can I supervise this while I'm supposed to be teaching my classes or preparing for my classes uh, and so on? One of the interesting things we also saw during this period is the decline of student participation and faculty uh, sponsorship of uh, student clubs on campus. This is something that we had tracked over the history of the school. The school had always had a very robust collective civic culture with lots of student clubs, and particularly in the 1990s, lots of student clubs focusing on difference, multiculturalism, and so on. And we argue that these clubs, which also led to some really interesting policies and interesting innovations on the campus, like a child care center that was used uh, by neighborhood uh, families as well as by some students who themselves uh, later in their in their in their in their high school careers um, actually had children themselves but uh, these student clubs symbolized and uh, and and essentially instantiated the trust of the of the students in the school and allowed students a place to work together toward collective goals with teachers and so on. And we found in the early 2000s as these security policies were implemented a dramatic decline of these student clubs. And so the whole civic culture of the school began to erode and unravel. And uh, by the time you get to around 2004 or 5, we had seen clubs decline from about 30 on campus uh, in the late 1990s to uh, just about a half a dozen. And so uh, there, were, there was not a lot going on on the campus except the coping with these new policies. You know, it's interesting because we are hearing a lot these days about beefing up school security kind of around the country in response to mass shootings and and things and one I'm curious about whether what your take is after researching this type of 
security and seeing how it affects culture, whether you see parallels at all between just implementing security and how it affects culture. Do you see any parallels between sort of this research and these calls for beefing up security sort of nationwide in schools? Yeah, we, we, we do. Now, and I should emphasize that our research focused on everyday conflict handling by youth uh, uh, rather than mass shootings. And so that there's, there's very different dynamics involving mass shootings compared to sort of everyday conflict on, on high school campuses. There's also different dynamics uh, in an urban or a high-poverty school compared to suburban or rural schools, and, and, and we need to recognize those. But in, but in general, uh, what, we, uh, what we, I think the parallels and I think some of the lessons that we could learn uh, from our research that could be uh, useful uh, for thinking about security in the in the in the in the in the contemporary context, is that there's a point of diminishing returns for fortifying schools. Uh, it may be that some security measures can reduce, for example, uh, the bringing of weapons, or can reduce uh, some of the uh, the violence that one sees on a, on a school in a, on a school campus. But the trade-off is is that you may erode the very dynamics or mechanisms uh, that makes that school a thriving uh, school. It turns it less into a school and more into a, into, a, uh, into a prison or a jail, has that kind of carceral feel to it. And so, uh, especially in this sort of era of diminishing budget return, uh, d- diminishing uh, school budgets and so on, I think we have to think about what the trade-offs might be, what the deleterious effects and unintended uh, effects might be uh, of those measures. The other thing about security measures is we know from not just our research, but lots of research, that security and uh, school discipline is highly racialized. That is to say, it affects different groups on campus in an unequal fashion. We know that African-American youth, we know that Latino youth, Latina youth are, are much more vulnerable to uh, school discipline, all else held constant, than, uh, than white youth or even in some cases, depending upon uh, the area and the context, Asian American youth. And so to beef up security uh, would probably in most cases mean exacerbating those inequalities and that vulnerability to school discipline, which leads to deleterious academic outcomes. So that's another problem with beefing up security. And then finally, uh, as many of the students as we've seen speaking from uh, the Parkland uh, High School and uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, other areas in around the country have said that beefing up security actually makes everyone ultimately and in the long term afraid to go to school, which is really interesting because we see students say, well, I, I wish you know, we had a little more security because it might make me feel uh, a little, you know, if I knew that there was a police officer there, I might be, I might be uh, uh, less afraid uh, of a mass shooter coming in and hurting the school. But in the long term, uh, out, you know, after the initial effects of beefing up security and the aftermath of a horrible and tragic, horrific shooting, like like experience, like that that was experienced in Parkland, students report that it actually increases anxiety on campus for all groups, while it makes other particular groups, especially non-white student groups, more vulnerable. 
And in the case of the school that you were studying, I we, we didn't get to talk about this, but over time, the school relaxed some of these policies and they took away some of this sort of heightened security. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, they did. And, and yeah. did you see a return to sort of the former uh, peaceful abilities to trust, navigating conflict? Did you see like that also ease up when the security measures were relaxed a little? Yeah, we did, and and you know one of the we we actually did see it relax. Um, another question is, you know, why did the school, which is relatively peaceful, uh, implement these policies in the first place? And it was at a time in the late '90s, early 2000s, in the aftermath of Columbine, uh, in which the moral panic surrounding urban youth violence joined with uh, concerns and fears and moral panic around suburban youth violence. And so there was money available and uh, principals, uh, in the case of the school we studied, a principal sort of made part of their career on bringing some safe schools money to the school and, and helping to transform the school uh, in that way. So, so there was a kind of hard-edged legitimacy to bringing those kinds of policies to the school. But in the later 2000s, uh, in 2006, 7, 8, 9, there was a new uh, regime, a new principal. This principal uh, had uh, come from uh, another school, was more familiar with the kinds of populations uh, that had come through the school that we studied. Uh, this is now, the school we studied was now a Latino dominant uh, a school. And that principal, uh, as well as, importantly, as well as the teachers, understood and began to learn some of the deleterious uh, outcomes of some of the earlier policies. In fact, in our, in our book, we uh, report a focus group that we held with teachers in which they explicitly referred to the impact of those security policies uh, from the early 2000s. And now we're, we're, we're talking about a focus group that's several years later that we conducted in which they, they, they explicitly talk about the problems that that created on campus with respect to the hardening of racial lines, with respect to overall conflict and disorder. And, and, they, and they talked about how they, they just weren't going to do those kinds of things anymore. So one of the, 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 I think one of the processes, one of the dynamics that we hope to reveal in our study is the importance of the continuity of teachers. We had teachers who had lived through the peaceful period of the 90s, the implementation of the policies of the early 2000s, in which some teachers supported it, many teachers opposed it, so it's a con you know, contested policy, but it passed nonetheless and was implemented. And then they lived through the relaxing of those policies. So teachers turn out to be a very important uh, uh, factor of continuity through all of this. They turn out to be very important in terms of uh, learning about what works collectively, both in their own classrooms and more generally on, on campus. Administrators can be, they can also uh, have long careers on campuses, but teachers who are on the front line, at least we argue, are really important in terms of learning about how these policies work and how they don't work and how they can be relaxed. And so we did find, uh, as we went back into the school in the late 2000s and then the early 2010s from 2008 to 2013, we extended our research 
we did find a return to some of the processes we had seen a decade earlier in the late 90s before the security policies were uh, enacted. And, and we attribute that to teacher continuity. We attribute that to the uh, rise and rejuvenation of meaningful student uh, collective civic action on campus. Uh, and we also attribute it to a principal who recognized uh, you know, what needed to be done in order to essentially make the school healthier again. You know, rather than installing a metal detector or beefing up security, where do you think educators, administrators could get maybe more bang for their buck in making an effort in school safety? I, I think we know already. It's no, there's no, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. I think we do know how it is that school safety and how it is that a thriving uh, school can be constructed. It, it has to start with uh, uh, cooperation and coordination and trust across teachers, across uh, 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 students, across administrators, across families, parents especially. Um, this is something that researchers have found in the reform of schools uh, in Chicago, for example, uh, a trust that cuts across those groups uh, lead to meaningful school reform and sustained school reform uh, and places that don't have that kind of trust. And, and what I mean by trust is an expectation of treatment of dignity, of coordination, of buy-in, and all of that that comes across. I think the, the other, the other and, and that's, that's, so you might say, well, how does that occur? Well, there has to be uh, meaningful interactions and engagements among those uh, among those parties. There has to be opportunities for voice. Uh, there has to be trust afforded to to teachers on the front lines who can uh, develop uh, curricula in a coordinated way with their peers within their schools and so on. So it's it's interesting that safety doesn't necessarily stem specifically from security, but it stems from the construction of a meaningful civic culture on, on the campus, and everything flows from, from, from that. I think another thing that could be done is uh, providing opportunities for meaningful student involvement in school. So we increasingly hear about budget cuts that mean no extracurriculars in public schools especially, no meaningful uh, involvement of, of students outside of the classroom in their schools. And this, I think, is a key uh, moment of unraveling of that civic culture. Because without that investment of, of students being involved with the schools, then uh, uh, students don't have a chance to develop sort of uh, working relationships with their peers, with their with teachers, and so on. School just becomes a place where they go, they're, they're, they're held in classrooms for six to eight hours a day, and then they're let go. It's, it's not more of a social organism that the uh, meaningful uh, extracurricular activities provide for them. So, again, this is not rocket science. This is not, this is not new. Uh, you know, these are not necessarily new ideas, but what is new is the link between meaningful extracurricular and student clubs, what we call collective civic action, drawing from uh, a couple of other sociologists, Doug McAdam and, and Robert Sampson, the, the relationship between meaningful collective civic action on campuses and safety 
on those campuses. That's what I think is the, the, the new idea, or an idea that needs to be better highlighted. Well, thank you so much, Calvin, for taking the time to talk to the Harvard EdCast. Oh, you're welcome. This is the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education.